Welcome to the Audit Bytes podcast with your host, Robert Berry, where we talk about touchy auditing topics in bite-sized chunks. Whether you're just starting out in auditing or you're a seasoned professional, you'll find something of value here. Tell all of our fellow auditors. You can find us live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and your favorite podcasting platforms. Tune in and join us for a thought-provoking and informative look at the world of auditing. Hey friends and welcome to episode 31. Can you believe it's 31 episodes already? Episode 31 of Audit Bites and today, today we're going to do something a little bit different because I mean, who wants to look at this face all the time? So today I have a special guest with me and I have a special topic. I have a special guest and I also have a special topic. Now let me also say, for those of you attempting to watch on LinkedIn, you're probably going to have to watch the replay because, well, LinkedIn has given me some errors and it is not showing up. But we are still on YouTube. So today our topic is artificial intelligence. And today we're talking with Danielle Cheek from MindBridge. She's going to talk to us about IA and by the time you finish watching this, you'll all be experts. No, I'm just kidding. None of us will ever be experts in it. But without further ado, let me bring on Danielle. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey. So is this the real you or is this AI? No, this one's the real me. Uh, yeah. And I can even correct something. You said IA instead of AI. And the dyslexic oh. in me almost missed it. <laughs> <laughs> what we're going to talk about today. It's tricky. The dyslexic in me. IA. There we go. <laughs> yeah. A-I-I-A. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's funny because people often ask me when they see me, is it the real Robert Berry? Because I use IA avatars of myself sometimes to clone myself. Uh. So, all right. So, so let's just dive right in today. Mm -hmm. What in the world is artificial intelligence? Like, what is it? <laughs> it's a surprisingly uh, almost overly broad and almost controversial uh, concept. So what is defined as a, I, I now I'm going to say it, I'm going to mix up and say IA. AI. Sorry. What is the, <laughs> the definition? Actually, there's a ton of controversy. I don't know if you knew this. There's a ton of controversy on the actual definition. Um, I tend to go back to historic times um, because I like a little bit of history. Uh, I, I go into a lot of accounting history for things. And, you know, people are usually worried about robot uprising and they don't realize how old the field of data science and computer science is. Uh, and so the original definition of AI, I got that right. AI, yeah, uh, is from 1955 um, uh, from McCarthy, who's considered the father of AI. And it was the science and engineering of making intelligent machines. So that's the broad concept. There are far more complex and more modern uh, definitions, but it's a really broad concept of mimicking certain human characteristics. Um, and these days, it's only very narrow scope, one-off pieces of, of a different component of human, the vision, the hearing, the ability to think in certain ways, um, the robotics um, type stuff. Yeah, because I know I've seen some heated debates online with people saying uh, things like art AI, it's not mm -hmm. really AI. You're just stealing work from other people and just putting something else together. But 
I'm with you. I think I think that anything that's done from a computer that is artificial in some way, hence artificial intelligence, yeah. is kind of AI. <laughs> I don't think we need to have these nuanced conversations where we argue about what it is. Yeah, definitionally, it's pretty broad uh, in general these days. Now, I'm just telling the LinkedIn audience that LinkedIn is broken for me today and come to YouTube. I don't know how many will now at this point because, uh, you know, LinkedIn is broken for me. But yeah, I think that AI is just anything that's artificial in nature. Um, so when it comes to auditors, though, should we be concerned with AI at all? Uh, well, concern's, a, again, a really broad concept. I, I think the concern is depending on what you're concerned about. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have concerns about being able to finish all the tasks that I need to get done, doing mm -hmm. more with less. So from that regard, AI will be part of the, the solution because it helps you recognize, recognize the patterns. Um, you know, should I be concerned of how do I have to think about how to do a step and how the risk profile of what I'm doing is changing uh, using AI? And then how do I supervise that or how do I change what others have done? So how do I change my response to others using AI? So that's that's, I think, the concern. The concern is in the fear of the change and that change management concept, the fear and the concern of AI taking my job. I, I do not expect AI to take my job. Um, I think most people out there probably realize the limitations of AI. It's really good at doing certain tasks very well, and it, but it's really bad at making human level thought criteria decisions and, 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 um, and deciding why something happened behind the scenes, digging in and doing that cognitive skills that we humans are good at, but it's not gonna give me that stuff. The, the example I use, so if anybody's ever heard me lecture, this example is boring to you, but I think it drives home the point really well. Let's say we're doing some kind of machine learning to figure out what is an unusual amount per particular vendor payment, like the dollar amount of the outbound like check going out to a particular vendor. So for a landlord, um, let's say rent is normally $10,000 for that particular location, and the system finds a $20,000 one-off check, um, and it's double the usual amount, so it's unusual for that particular vendor. Right. That's an analysis we could do individually. It'd probably take a while through pivot tables and trying to figure out the number of standard deviations, all that stuff. So it's something we could do. It's something very easily approachable. OK, so it gets flagged as different than everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. the AI. But why is it different? You and I would probably think, OK, first month rent. Got it. Let's go look on the balance sheet to see if we see the deposit as an asset like that's going to be intuitive for us. OK. Maybe we can code a program to have the logic of built that in. Okay, then the next thought is if it's not first month, we'll probably go to December, right? That's another unusual time that you're always worried about kind of cutoff concepts. And you'll say, okay, it's double the normal amount of the check. Maybe it's for December and January. And that's what you'd look into, right? But here's the thing. Let's do deeper. What is the human behavior of the processes for which transactions get into a system? Usually they pay December rent on December 1st. And December 23rd-ish is if we're going to close the office or be pretty busy and, and be busy with family obligations or whatever may be happening in that last week of the year, maybe it's just inventory even. I'm going to prepay my January rent probably December 23rd-ish. Mm -hmm. Why in the world would I ever have a double individual, double amount individual check at the beginning of December? That doesn't match the human behavior of the accounting processes that we know to exist within an organization. 
So that level of cognitive capability and why something happened and what to dig into next, I don't think is going to get replaced out of humans. But the pattern recognition to drive up and say, hey, this one's different than everything else. Please look at this one first, maybe. That I think is what the, the going back to your word on concern, because I've really over-explained your, your comment on concern. You know, no, I'm was concerned great. Of, did that get flagged correctly? And then do I do the right thing with it? And I, do I interpret it correctly? Yeah, that was great because I think you touched on a few points. So uh, a few days ago, I made a post on LinkedIn that made some people mad. And oh. it was, AI will not replace people. People who know how to use AI will replace people. Yep. And I heard that one. My goodness. It <laughs> made some people upset. But LinkedIn News picked it up and ran with it, and it, mm -hmm. it just took off. And um, I think that's important to recognize that we can do a lot with artificial intelligence, but there's some decisioning that still needs a human, still needs a human touch. Um, it can't do everything. We can't do every single scenario and put it into some sort of artificial intelligence model. Now we can try, but at some point, somebody will think up something new and different. Yeah. And you, you've touched on a really parking lot, the controversy of that piece, but the, the really touched on something interesting. The, the concept of what is knowable is where I really think that this is, this comes back to right now, there's a wave of transparency expectations. Um, that's why fraud TV shows and movies have become so popular um, in docu-series. Like, I love them, too. And and it, it's almost accounting and forensic accounting. My background's forensic accounting has become mainstream-ish and cool. Uh, you know, when Ben Affleck uh, portrays, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's got to be pretty mainstream, especially data analytics. But the the, you know, a lot of the foundations of what is happening in capital markets right now is back to a foundation of expectation of transparency and what is knowable. And I think mm -hmm. within, within our organizations, the digitization of the finance function. So everybody that's been doing RPA work or just making sure that their ERP is capturing all this different data has created that explosion of data. So the big hot topic used to be big data. How do you deal with the big data, all this data and all that digitization? What people haven't realized is when, when you have all that data, it's great. It's, it's really great, but it's incredibly hard to analyze because there's so much volume there. And when somebody comes back in after you with hindsight being always 2020 and the, the the benefit of knowing what has happened in history they can go find exactly what they're looking for that data trail exists um but when you're living in the moment and you don't have the benefit of hindsight what is knowable to you at this time it's it's no longer the days that something is no longer knowable because somebody accidentally knocks a piece of paper off their desk or a file folder, it gets in the trash and gets taken out, and it, the the trail never existed. The trails exist these days, and so that concept of what could possibly be knowable is so profoundly complex. Um, and you, at the risk of so, I'll have to actually disclose I'm also a professor as well, so I have a tendency to ramble on and 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 maybe pontificate a little too much. So if you ever need me to pull back, just yell at me and I'll, I'll stop. But we, we categorize usually anomalies into three different categories of, of what is known um, and how different it is from each other. So there's the concept of known knowns, 
So those are things that I know to be different from everything else, rare and infrequent concepts. In, in the world of accounting, that's going to be your month and close journal entries, your depreciation entries, that kind of stuff. Stuff you know to be rare and infrequent, therefore you put a lot of preventative controls because you know they're different than everything else and they need extra controls around them because they're different. They were used to them, but they're still different than everything else. Yeah. Then there's the unknown unknowns. So we know things to exist that are different than everything else, but we don't know when necessarily. So think of like a miscoding. We know miscodings happen. So we need to come up with a process to identify those. A lot of detective controls are built around those known unknowns. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people's current data analytics programs are sitting there trying to figure that out in that business intelligence concept. Then it's the unknown unknowns. That's where everybody finds those like, I can't believe we didn't know about this. This is, oh my God, nothing. This is probably what your Friday podcast, uh, Fri uh, Fraudster Friday uh, stuff is all about. All that yeah, stuff yeah. that you never knew was lurking in that deep CD depth uh, of it. And so to, to determine the pattern recognition to actually identify and categorize things um, in this explosion of data, like the computational power, and if you were to do this by hand, will take more than your career just to calculate some of these concepts for how big these data sets are getting. And so to, to over answer your question again, because I have a tendency to do that, is back to the, the artificial intelligence is helping with that pattern recognition to provide that demarcation of patterns that then the humans go and review. So back to, it's it's going to be about the cognitive ability for people to interpret information that's provided to them. Um, I think it's really going to be that key differentiator going forward. Now, you know, that that's a really good point because it, I think it also goes into another skill set that auditors should have and sometimes lack. And that's, mm -hmm critical thinking and root cause analysis. Um, you're going to have to be able to interpret some mm -hmm. sort of output and do some scenario analysis in your head mm -hmm. or be able to interpret it directly and say, okay, here is the problem. But critical thinking is going to be much more important in the future. This is my prediction, more mm -hmm. so than um, debits and credits. You still need to know debits and credits. Don't yeah, get me wrong. Yeah, so foundation concepts are actually going to be table stakes, I think, yeah. for those that are going to really succeed. Um, you know, I think I was on the CPA, ex actually, Robert, you don't know this, I was on the CPA exam curricular committee uh, for the redesign of the CPA exam of what content embodied knowledge needs to be included. I, I was on the bar uh, task force, which is the business reporting and analytics uh, concepts. And so a, a lot of that conversation of that committee was about making sure that the CPA exam is reflecting what knowledge base uh, it's expected to have early, young, you know, first, second year CPAs, young in their career um, in it. And, and, and I think you've touched on something really profound here that the, those that are going to very much succeed are those that are going to have the ability to communicate. Um, Dan Pink wrote a great book on this concept. Um, one of the few books I've read, because I, <laughs> don't always have time to read anything beyond standards, it seems. Uh, they've gotten pretty lengthy and dense. But um, he wrote a great book about we're now in the conceptual age. We're past the information age. It's yes. not this fourth industrial revolution about computers. It's about curation of content and being conceptual. 
and in, in any field. So accounting and auditing for sure, it's going to be about curating information so you can drive home the point that matters. And I think people have started to really recognize that because there's so much noise, there's so much information that a strong curation and the ability to communicate is going to be very strong, uh, a strong indicator of those who succeed. And actually, um, IESBA, which is the International Ethics Body for CPAs, actually in an early draft, actually had as a requirement that you had to have good communication skills for the ethics. And I, I actually push back on that one because I think that is an indicator of being a, a good uh, indicator of being able to succeed very highly in your career, but it's not an indicator of a violation of ethics. And so, but to even have that originally included, I thought was a really, whew, that's a big step in my mind. Um, well, I think it's really judgmental topic. too. Like, how do you measure yeah, that? How do you communicate? Uh, and, and, and I personally believe that your communication needs to modify to the audience that you're listening that is listening to you so you need Absolutely. to change your style or whatever is the the technique not being disingenuous or two-faced that kind of stuff but being able to make sure that you can communicate to the right level of technical knowledge or uh, or norms of that group so that you can be heard well because otherwise nobody understood what you were saying we live in a very technical world of of really nuanced detailed concepts and if you can't get your point across um it, it's it's going to be really difficult for somebody to succeed easily. Yes, absolutely. And, and I like what you said. We we do, or we're coming out of the information age. We have enough information now to where mm -hmm. if we compile it the right way, we should be able to make better decisions in life. You know, so that's in life personally mm -hmm. and professionally. There's a ton of information out there. So when it comes to auditing and accounting. What do you see as being some of the um, the functions of a role as an accountant or an auditor now, given that we're going into this new era? Yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty much what you touched on. It's it's the ability to have those critical thinking skills to interpret what you're seeing. Um, it's you know the old way of most accounting career progressions was very much apprenticeship based. Um, do these, you know, go to external audit for a couple of years, do your cash confirmations, do your cash work, do your, like all these different steps and you get more and more complex areas. And then you're allowed to start reviewing the simple areas. And, and there's this progression. And when you start to think about what uh, new in their career type accountants are going to be exposed to is a lot of that work that is very routine, rote, like not very um, thought intensive, just mechanical is going to be the stuff that gets automated away. So you're going to move directly in to the concept of reviewing work, not necessarily by another human's work, but reviewing the summary and the pattern recognition that's provided to you. And how do you understand that information and interpret it? I, I think for me, where, where people are gonna need to go to is think about not just the how from like a, a business process walkthrough, uh, how the data came to be, that's going to be a tremendously important understanding and it ties into your concept of risk cause analysis. But go back to what is the human behavior that matches to that process? I, I think everything now is going to be about a breadcrumb trail. Like the data is the breadcrumb trail and the answer key of the end result of human behavior. Um, and, and where does human behavior fit into certain pieces and where is the demarcation line? Because if you think about humans being valuable, um, or not perfect, but we also code the different machines. And that means the machines also have the 
potential to be consistently fallible <laughs> because we did some kind of coding. So it's going to be exactly what you talked about of making sure you can understand how something came to be and then doing the critical thinking skills to get to the next level of why. And I think you hit it right nail on the head root cause analysis. So if everyone hasn't heard of the five whys, it's kind of your entry level root cause analysis approach where you pretty much ask the question why. You can ask it to yourself. You can ask it to the data. Um, you don't have to actually verbalize or have an interview with why, but you sit there and ask that question and usually give or take by the time you get to five answers back, you'll get to something that more resembles the underlying issue that's causing whatever is happening versus just chasing symptoms. And so what you're trying to do is get beyond the symptoms and get into that original root of the issue. And that will be what you really can spend some time to drive on whatever is the, the particular task or project or engagement you're on. And what makes this really interesting is I think the world of accounting and auditing is going to be turned upside down because as you just said, you're going to have to know how to communicate and so that that's an entirely different skill set. Oftentimes we like sitting in our corners and just kind of playing with calculators. But uh, <laughs> now well, but here's the thing is that accounting function has always been a communication function. Yes. It always it, has been. It's always been. Financial statements are a method of communication. If you're doing yes. audit reports, that letter is a form of communication. What I think is going to be stressful for people is what is the new form of communication? I think all those legacy forms of communication are going to need to exist because there's robust procedures and processes around them. But if you think about like, think of the concept of non-GAAP measures. Um, you're, you're thinking about, okay, this is in effect a new way to communicate a different kind of information that the organization finds relevant. And it creates a whole host of other risks and unintended consequences potentially because sometimes those non-GAAP measures are more internally relevant to the day-to-day -day operations versus the formal more GAAP measure focused, like actual financial statements, are the more comparable um, reporting out. And so I think it's going to be a very much how is going to be the complexity for many accountants to get used to how we communicate is going to change, but we're never going to lose our foundation because it's such a highly regulated and consistent. We want the comparability. We want the trends to be consistent, consistent, not, not necessarily like consistent, like exact same ratios on things, but we want, we want the same information and type of information being reported over time. And if you think about, okay, back to nerdy history lesson a little bit, when you go and do like archeological digs and stuff like that, some of the most interesting information and where they gain the most information about become accounting records. And so because of that, I think we actually have one of the oldest forms of communication that still exists today when you go back and dig out like Dead Sea Scrolls type stuff, but it's going to change. And I think that change and the change management of what's, where do we balance the innovative and the way we need to communicate for how decisions are being made or what needs to be made in our more narrow scope and, and tailored way versus the entire ecosystem, ecosystem excuse me, of like the regulatory marketplace. And I think that's going to be the disconnect that accountants really struggle with in that change management and, and balancing of the communication. Yeah, I, I liken it to um, an IT person mm -hmm. trying to speak to a non-IT person. That's what I see coming for the accounting and auditing profession, mm -hmm. where there are two different languages and the most successful yep. people will be those who become bilingual. 
Yes. Yep. I agree. So now let's talk about MindBridge and <laughs> how does MindBridge help auditors using artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. So um, we are an organization that sits there and helps you do full population testing. So we do, we have a series of tests, we call them uh, control points um, that we bundle together into an ensemble AI package. And what it does is it tells you how different every single transaction is from each other. And what you do with that is, is, is pretty diverse. Um, you know, we have external audit customers, we have internal audit, we have controllers, CFOs, all those types of different organizations within the finance function uh, in the financial industry. The concept really is based around if you have a transaction in a ledger and you know how different it is from every single thing else, what can you infer about either from a substantive or an inherent concept that is different or even a control perspective? So let's think about, um, let's, let's use an example because I think it's best explained in an example. So if you have a very robust AR function within your organization, let's pretend you're manufacturing and even in will call, you still run everything through AR. It just sits in AR for almost no time at all kind of thing, but it still touches AR. So a new way to think about looking at risks in particularly bypassing a controls risk concepts is looking at the transaction structures, monetary flows, and how different it is from every single thing else. If all the transactions are structured, revenue to AR, AR to cash, and you have a transaction that goes from revenue directly to cash, that is not a violation of accounting logic, but it is a violation of what should be normal for those business processes of that organization. And so what's really hard to catch that is, let's say we're doing some internal audit tests or external audit tests to try to find those things. Where are you going to find it right now? You're not going to find it in any AR work because it doesn't exist in the AR work. Yeah. I doubt you're going to find it in cash based on the, like some kind of cash testing because most people are usually focused on some kind of concept of does the cash exist? Um, they're, they're most worried about the cash actually being there because that's the biggest risk within cash. How it came to be in cash? lesser risk as compared to the primary risk. So then it's in AR and excuse me, in revenue is where we have a chance of catching it. And most people's revenue testing is no, especially after um, uh, the new revenue recognitions with the five steps under um, ASC 606 is not really focused on how did it come to be via AR versus cash. It's, it's usually about some kind of recognition criteria, some kind of nuance. It's not about how did it come to be necessarily into that ledger. And so, but if you know you have that really robust AR function, knowing that you had something completely bypass that process, that means you have a risk of an override or a bypass of controls. And that kind of information is what you can start to ascertain from full population testing, not just all the kind of automation of certain substantive procedures. And so it's a new way to think about when we run so many weak tests, this is a weak indicator. So like things that are good tests, everything is good, but it will out when you add them all together, you'll start to find what is most different from everything else and uh, be able to hopefully do something interesting and rethink your approaches and fit into your current, um, you know, uh, extant approaches as well. Yeah. Now, we, we were talking earlier about AI and how it actually learns and how mm -hmm. it's developed. And you were saying that you guys have a revolutionary or a new type of uh, AI that you're testing. Did I say it again? No, I said it right. Oh, that yeah, 
Yeah. So I said AI. <laughs> yeah, you said AI correctly. Yeah. I said it that time. But but I want the audience to understand that there are various ways that AI is implemented. You have some that is based on historical data. And so that mm-hmm. historical data is just compiled and the AI actually learns to predict to to predict patterns and behaviors. Now you see this most often in like your AI writers, those writing tools that help people write fraudulent term papers and past tests. So what it's doing is predicting the next word that should be in place. But you were also saying that there are other types of artificial intelligence out there as well. So could you talk about those so that the audience can kind of get up to speed? Because I think most of them may be familiar with the learning models where you pump in some data and it learns. Yeah, so um, I'm going to go back and correct one thing. What we're doing is not newfangled at all. It's actually a very old concept. It's just a new application. So there's, um, I'm going to use some technical data analytics terms and data science terms, but I'm going to promise I'll explain everything. So bear with me on the terms, but, and and I'll, I'll use a, let me use an example. I love using examples. So everybody knows how terrible the term unqualified opinion is, right? Because the old audit term of unqualified opinion, everybody that's normal human beings thought that meant that the person issuing that opinion was not qualified to issue that opinion versus as an opinion without a qualifier. So in the world of data science, there's actually two different main buckets of what's called machine learning. So machine learning is one of the types of AI. It's where obviously a machine learns and can give you help with pattern recognition. So there's two different flavors. One is called supervised machine learning. And that's one that everybody perceives to be like, oh, it's good. The humans are supervising it. But what actually it is, is it's the inbound is where the human human supervision happens. So to overly simplify, what happens in a supervised machine learning is exactly what you talked about. You provide a data set that has some kind of categorical filter or categorical label associated with it. So the can we discern all the cats in the picture? So we give it a thousand cat pictures and that we've human identified as cat pictures. And then somehow the machine has a, a, a way to determine, okay, it has a certain level of pointy ears with this amount of discretion. And then that's probably a cat or the eye is this much distance from the ear. And it, it picks up on these patterns and then it will be able to predict the next time it sees a cat because it sees these features and said within a certain amount of certainty, um, you know, the eye distance and the ear point, it, it's, it makes sense. Okay. That kind of machine learning has the risks of all the human bias in anything that's been trained to it or any past trends. So that's really great types of AI for in machine learning for predicting future outcomes, just like you said. So like fraudulent credit card charges, that's great because you don't have the data of the next credit card charge when you're analyzing the rest. What, what the approach we take is something called unsupervised machine learning. And everybody always freaks out at the name unsupervised. It sounds like nobody's minding the shop and nobody's watching the computers. Um, but really it's actually that there's no human bias being provided on the inbound data. So the supervision versus unsupervised is all based on inbound um, data sets. So no bias coming in to the data set. And all it does is sit there and run so many tests simultaneously that it gives you the patterns of the data sets. So the machine learning is based on the only the data set per provided to it, nothing outside of the data provided to it. So it's not predicting future outcomes. It's giving you all the patterns of your existing data set 
And then you are supposed to sit there and figure out what does this mean? Of course we help you <laughs> um, and give you like, here's what, here are the different things that it, it didn't do well on, or here's why it's different from everything else. But that interpretation is, is, um, is kind of the responsibility of the human and where we shouldn't take over the human experience. So the difference is really that supervised has the inbound human bias potentially risk coming in. That's the one you have to pay attention to. And unsupervised, you don't have that training data set because the data set is the only stuff that's assessed and analyzed. And then you have any kind of um, uh, bias that the human is when they're reviewing it. So if you get that human bias on both sides, on the supervised, just on the review, on the supervised, and, or excuse me, unsupervised, it's now tricky for me to say, um, and then always making sure that whoever is doing your coding of whatever system uh, has, you know, made sure that they don't have an injected bias into the actual algorithm that's created themselves. But there's actually a very robust and long field of data science the same way. There's a long, robust field of accounting history and accounting approaches that all exist within data science of like appropriate models to use for different kinds of things. Yeah, and I think that's... Um that's an important distinction for auditors, whether internal or external to understand, because we're not going to be looking at the actual models themselves. That's what the data scientists do. However, the risk, the, the controls outside of the models are things that I think auditors should be concerned with. I'm actually going to make a prediction that we're going to start to see um, certification bodies, something similar to uh, like a SOC and SOC uh, type certification for AI. I'm gonna make Did somebody prediction. pay you to say that? No, like, no so, it just uh, you may sense. not know this. <laughs> um, but we were actually the world's first to have an algorithm audit. Um, and so we actually hired uh, University College of London Consulting, which now is Holistic AI, and they do our annual algorithm audit. So they actually do, uh, it's called a code seven level, level seven code review, I believe it's called. Um, and they go into the code and review uh, all of our algorithms to make sure that they're low risk of bias performing as expected. And it's a very similar to a SOC report or an ISO report where you um, you you get to have somebody go review uh, the algorithm. So yes, I agree with you that that's a prediction that should happen. Uh, and others I think are are joining suit. Yeah, I mean- it, very, very insightful. <laughs> I, you know, it's that predictive analysis. Maybe I am AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but but doesn't it make sense, though, because um, to your point earlier, none of this is really new. It's just different ways of doing things. Um, and, and I talk to a lot of auditors who are deathly afraid of change and deathly afraid of what could happen when it comes to artificial intelligence. But I think it's the same things that we should be talking about. It's the input. It's the processing that happens. Then mm -hmm. it's the output. Then yep. it's the interpretation of the output. It's, you know, I'm I'm a country boy from Alabama, so I keep things like really, really simple. And I think when you do that, everything kind of makes sense. I think you can audit anything if, um, if it just makes sense. Now, unfortunately, my LinkedIn audience got abandoned today and some of them came over to YouTube. Sono is here and she's just saying hey to us. Sono, if you have any questions about artificial intelligence, drop them. We'll be happy to have that discussion. What I'm going to do for everyone is I'm going to run the replay on LinkedIn uh, probably tomorrow, and uh, I'll be sitting around watching it, taking some questions then. So I do apologize for the LinkedIn. Just really, I don't know what happened. 
I pushed the button and it said no. That's exactly what it said. Um, YouTube was doing just fine. But yeah, so we're having a discussion about artificial intelligence. Um, we we have some really good lessons learned. I think you guys should just go back and listen to this episode. Um, where were we? I, I distracted myself that time. You you were talking about the uh, the process. So you still have inbound uh, data inputs that you have to make sure that you can audit. You have the yeah. process of which the data is processed or whatever process may be happening, the outbound, and what do you do with the outbound? So very standard process that most people are probably very familiar with. Yeah. And what I don't want is I don't want the fear of artificial intelligence to stop, especially auditors from looking at those controls surrounding the actual models. I don't think any of us, many of us are qualified to look at the actual machine learning coding that is happening. That's why I'm glad you mentioned that you guys have someone that actually looks at that for the integrity, for the bias, because mm -hmm. if you have bias in the system, that could really throw you off for a while. I was reading an article yesterday. There is a system that child protective service, child protective service agencies across the country use to do modeling to figure out which homes need to be visited. And now they're saying that there's a bias in it for a bunch of different categories, but specifically for disabled individuals and minority individuals where they may have sent out CPS agents to homes where they probably shouldn't have. And they're saying that it's a bias in the AI model that's being used. Yeah. So my question is, was it tested? Who's testing it? You know where? <laughs> so a lot of questions pop up in my head now. Yeah, and there's there's multiple different ways of testing it, even if you're you're not a data scientist yourself. So, for example, on if you're looking at like whole population testing, because that's that's my bread and butter. Um, when you look at if you go back to talking about the different kinds of what is different from everything else, you have those known knowns, things that I know to be different than everything else. Um, a lot of people will find that to be boring if they run a test and find the stuff that they already know to exist in the results of their test. But that's proof <laughs> that your approach is actually probably working. It may not be exactly perfect yet. You may need refinement, but those different concepts, it's a different way to think about how to prove out something. So, you know, the foundation ends up being, you know, third party validation, uh, SOC, ISO and, and concepts of like specific algorithm audit concepts. But then it starts becoming, what did you do on like sanity checks on a lot of stuff? We, we have a lot of people that still do one-off tests to do sanity checks of different components. So whatever, what, and that's you have bias that you could put into an inbound data set to see if it picks it up, see if it doesn't, whatnot. That's why when you have models that don't need to be retrained because they only look at their data, the risk of bias is actually very low because it's not getting bias from that historical. So if you have known historical bias in a situation, um, that that will just bleed through to your training if you're using one of those models. So we do like sanity checks of different things, feed, feed something data and see what it does with it. Um, and then look at the results and see if it meets expectations. So I think going back to your concept on critical thinking skills, it's going to be a different way to think about how can I rely upon technology? Um, the, the new international um, ethics, uh, technology ethics project. So the ISBA that sets international ethics for CPAs did a project that was just voted out last two months ago now, because it's February. And um, they're going to expect 
international CPAs, and there'll probably be a convergence project in the US, to rely upon technology the same way they'd assess the use of an expert. So if you're gonna rely upon an expert, a human expert, like let's say we need a chemical engineer <laughs> or something, um, how do I assess that chemical engineer's qualifications for me to rely upon that person? same concept is going to exist for technology. And I think it's a fairly elegant way to deal with this, because if we think about back to how you started this conversation of what is the definition of artificial intelligence, and it's the concept of intelligence, intelligent machines and engineering, um, that's taking a little part of an automation of a human part of things as everything's narrow or weak AI right now. And I think that's where it's gonna stop um, in most cases. And so, when you think about that, that's how it's supposed to be replacing it, assessing it the same way you'd assess the use of a human expert for if it's an appropriate use of or appropriate qualifications is probably not a half bad way to do it. So if you start thinking about it that way, um, there's different tiers of different levels of evidence you can pre prepare to make sure you're actually relying upon good tech and, and understanding the outputs that it's that's creating for you and any risk that you may have by relying upon it. Yeah, and I think you made another really good point that uh, auditors are going to have to consider. Normally, when we work, we look for exception items. But I think that sanity check that you just mentioned is extremely important. Um, we need to do more insanity checks because now we're looking at essentially the integrity of the system that we're using. Mm-hmm. I, I actually am giving a webinar later this month in about two weeks that it's it's got a better title than this, but it's going to be all about the normally boring results of data sets. Like what are the cool uses you can have for what you would normally consider super boring? So I'll, I'll give you a little teaser. Um, the the uh, and I you actually didn't know where I was doing this either, I don't think. Um, the uh, for leases, uh, everybody may or may not know that leases are pretty much always going to go on your balance sheet from now on is, is, is kind of the summary of it. And so a lot of auditors are worried about how do I assess that if I got all these embedded leases into my financial statements. So the concept of does my IT service contract, it's called a service contract, actually come with it a bunch of hardware that I actually have something called an embedded lease. It's now a big deal because even though the definition didn't change, it's now a missed liability versus a missed disclosure. The missed disclosure is not great, but not catastrophic. Your auditors do care about a missed liability. Yeah, so everybody's worried difference. about how are you gonna do that? So how do you find those risks? So if you go, let's use my example of a vendor analysis. So if we figure out what is normal for all the different vendors, and I can do this over time, and I see the vendor that has the most consistent payment stream. So the least anomalous activity by vendor, that's going to be the highest risk of having an embedded lease in it because there's such consistent overtime payment streams. So that now means I can use my completeness by my boring data by vendor for my embedded leases. So it's a totally different way to think about how to get that evidence or that approach that you need to find what the data will show me and what those boring patterns will actually present. So you're, you've hit the nail on the head again, as consistently as you do. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Always hitting the nail on the head. Um, exactly on the point of, yeah, the boring data is actually really important and relevant for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it, it's kind of amazing because it, it truly is retooling the way that we think. Hmm. So it goes back to almost kind of how we started. 
Artificial intelligence will not necessarily replace humans. Humans who understand how to leverage it to bring a benefit to the corporation will replace humans that don't know how to use artificial intelligence. What do you think about that? Uh, I, I mean, logically, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm hesitant to say something at the risk of creating a controversy myself. <laughs> um, but I'm good yeah, with controversy. It's going to be those critical thinking skills that drive it. So I agree yeah. completely that accountants are going to need the critical thinking skills. What tools they use to get the critical thinking skills on steroids, in effect, is what that's going to create. Uh, yeah. I'll leave it to everybody to decide what that tool is going to be. And let me just say, sometimes I like to poke the bear because I mentioned earlier, right. I posted this thing <laughs> on LinkedIn. And re realistically, will some jobs be lost? Of course. I mean, it's what happens when new technologies are introduced. That's just the way it is. Ooh. Now, th this actually is a really good question. Will companies invest more in training their staff to understand the capabilities of AI to collaborate with it effectively? I would say yes. I, I thought it was, the question was going to have a more than the actual tech itself uh, component to it. Um, but, you, you know, I actually foresee that in some cases the tech is going to be the cheap part and the yeah. how to use it and how to retool your processes or how to rethink about the, the data and the human capital perspective will be the harder part and, and the more costly from an opportunity opportunity cost perspective for many organizations. You know, the tech out there, you know, some tech may be perceived as expensive to a lot of people, but if you compare what it would take to have a human redo all that work, it's actually relatively cheap. Um, you know, storage costs are pretty cheap these days. Like it's, there's a lot of, fairly cheap tech out there and it's how do you use it and what processes do you build around it that create those different cost layers for an organization so will they invest more in training i sure as hope so <laughs> i do really think they need to um and and may maybe it exceeds even the cost of the technology itself because i think the tech is the cheap part these days yeah i completely agree with that and and i'll add to that um I think companies that do a really good job of training and supporting their employees currently will actually jump on the bandwagon and train their employees in the future. Those who do a horrible job of it now will continue to do horrible at it and they will actually suffer. I think you'll see a lot of um, companies fall because they lose their competitive advantage. I think I, I think AI, sorry, I think AI, <laughs> AI brings a lot of opportunities with it. There are a lot of risks, but there are a lot of yeah. opportunities. And those opportunities give you the, the chance to really have a good competitive advantage in the marketplace. And so, again, companies that do well with it now will continue. Those who don't will start to, well, fold. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be... To me, the competition for talent is what's so top of mind for a lot of people. Um, I, you know, the, the investment in training is, I think, what you need for a holistic organizational, like solid deployment and use of technology. You know, as people, there, you know, there's an entire, you know, hype cycle and an approach of where people usually accept technology within their processes, because it is pretty disruptive in certain cases. Sometimes you can plug something in very easily and it, it, it automates a certain piece of it and goes well. But I think from the human aspect, the the ability to keep your staff upskilled and trained continuously allow them to be working at the um 
kind of cutting edge of their fields um, without going to the point of change crazy, you know, change management and change balancing and, you know, preparing for those pitfalls. Cause everybody knows, or hopefully everybody knows when you have a change, there's always this trough of disillusionment or this, this pain point. Always. And it, it, managing change management is about actually managing expectations. So that down piece is not so bad. It's a, it's a little blip. Everybody knows it's coming. We're like, was that our blip or is it, or we have a bigger one coming. And right. so if you can kind of get your employees on these kind of continuous improvement cycles and, and keeping up with things and yet not having them overly stressed out about it, it's actually going to improve retention. Um, people are going to feel valued. They, they, they know what their role within an organization is. They know how they provide value. And those kinds of concepts, when they're enabled by technology to do their best in capability of their job that maybe they haven't been able to do in the past because of the lacking of technology, um, and anytime you reduce staff turnover, it's extremely costly to have staff turnover. And everybody knows the, the hot market it is for accountants and how hard it is to keep many accountants right now. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you on that uh, with a slight twist to it. Yeah, no, no. Good stuff. I, I, I like the slight twist. So we've covered a lot today. Um, those who know this program know we like for it to be a learning program. So we've talked a lot about artificial intelligence and supervised and unsupervised AI. We've also talked about some risks that auditors might face, but also the fact that critical thinking, root cause analysis, those will be some important skills because the AI is going to tell us something. We need to be able to interpret it and use really good communication skills so that we can convey the results to other people. Um, so let me ask you, any huge predictions for artificial intelligence in 2023? Yeah. Okay. So my big one is a trend I've been seeing, and it's the tools to detect AI versus humans. Um, I, it's almost, I don't know if you're familiar with the Turing test. It's from the father comp side, um, from the fifties again. And it was, can you tell if you're interacting with a human or a machine? And the concept was to get a machine so good that you interact, you don't realize you're interacting with a machine versus the human. And it's almost like a reverse Turing test now. And there's a lot of systems coming out there to look at the fallible nature of humans and detect that fallible nature. So a lot of the, um, like the chat GPT and like the, the, the copy generator type stuff mm -hmm. is looking for imperfections. It wants to see the trend of imperfections. It's too perfect when it comes out of AI potentially. Um, there's one for deep fakes that like looks at some kind of like vein blood plosive thing. I don't I don't know quite enough about the the body to know yeah. exactly what it is. But you know, if you believe that humans are valuable because they 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 need blood pumping through them versus a computer, but the the concept I think there's going to be this concept of almost like a reverse Turing test where we're detecting the the imperfections in things to determine the likelihood of a human interaction because humans are imperfect. But there's a certain level of like perfection in that imperfection. Um, so I think that's the trend uh, that I see kind of popping onto the market because you're only hearing a little bit of rumblings about those right now. Wow. I, you know, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I was actually reading this morning about uh, the deep fake detector that does something with mm -hmm. the blood vessels or veins. Yeah, I don't exactly. It's like some kind of coloration change. And so... Yeah. And so now I, I do work with uh, uh, synthetic media. So I do understand because if you look at them, they don't have veins and they don't 
yeah. they don't necessarily take a breath. They try to fake it sometimes. So I'm with you. I do think that that's going to be big and that's going to be exciting. Um, yeah. so, I was watching for the lip reading actually on your intro one because the lips are off. So my, uh, yeah, some family members ha have taught me to do a little lip reading. And so uh, I, yeah. I could tell the slight difference. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because I use a few different ones and one has better uh, lip sync technology than the others. Mm. And the one that's on the intro here is not the best one. It's the second or third best. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know what? Thank you for joining me because you know what? You are actually the first guest on this podcast ever. This is typically oh, wow. just me. I, I feel so special. Yeah. Thank you so much. You, you are the very first. And I think, so I, I've had people ask me, hey, can we come on audit bikes? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I just like well, talking very about honored to be here. Yeah, no, I'm I'm honored to have you. So, um, is there anything that you're working on before we go? Is there anything that you're working on that you want to tell people about that they should know about, or anything that you want to convey to the audience here? I think I've got the big stuff. Uh, the next one I'm working on is some changes to sample theory, some innovative concepts on sampling theory. We've we've mm -hmm. had some interesting stuff in the past that's been really good and, and excited, but the next one I'm particularly excited about. Because uh, it's a different twist on things, but I'm I'm not quite ready to share it with the world because I'm still uh, still working through it. Uh, but last year's big one was a risk assessment and how to actually normalize uh, high frequency accounts versus low frequency accounts to actually compare them apples to apples. Because um, when you have uh, anomaly detection and you're looking at patterns of how similar things are, those revenue accounts will inherently go lower in risk profile because there's just so much volume. So how do you ever compare that? to a low frequency balance sheet account that has, you know, maybe 12 entries in it, maybe 24 or something like that. Now that so. is interesting. So if anyone needs to reach out to you, where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn, obviously, uh, I, I assume the MindBridge website, um, and my email should be plastered all over those areas. And, and so, uh, or danielle.cheek at mindbridge.ai is, is the quick email plug. All right. So thank you for me today. We're going to close the show out. But those of you on YouTube, if you want to hear the show from the beginning, we're going to run it on LinkedIn probably tomorrow. So everybody, we'll see you next time. Thank you for watching this episode of Audit Bytes. If you receive value from this podcast, do us a favor. First, tell other auditors. Second, give us a five-star review. And finally, talk to Robert about training your auditors. Our contact information is on our website, www.thatauditguy.com. It's also where you will find our course catalog, on-demand courses, a kick-butt blog, other podcasts, Robert's best-selling books, and last but not least, audit merch. That's right, we have audit hats, shirts, mugs, and more. Thanks for watching and listening. See you next episode.